This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Alexandra Collier, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. Incredibly interesting story. Let me introduce you. Alexandra was a writer living in a light-filled Brooklyn brownstone in New York with the man she loved. But when she woke up to a ravenous hunger to have a baby that her partner didn't share, her life took a sharp turn. She found herself back in Melbourne at 37, single, heartbroken and living with her parents. Uh, Ali, and do you mind me calling you Ali? No, that's fine. Okay. Ali began dating with dedication uh, with sometimes hilarious and often soul-crushing results. Like many 30-something something single women, she found uh, that her reproductive timeline was rapidly outpacing her romantic life. So she began to explore a controversial option, conceiving a baby with a donor sperm. Is that still controversial? It's interesting. I think it's becoming more and more common now. Uh, I do feel like whenever I tell people that I've done this, they sort of sort of lean in and want to know more in a way that suggests it's still salacious to some degree, or it's still not the not the norm, you know. And I think it's becoming much more widely accepted. I know the numbers are growing, and people are becoming more open minded about, you know having families in different ways, which is great. There are still communities, I think, who would be opposed to it. Um, I don't encounter those people as much. I'm probably living in a writerly progressive bubble, but, (laughs) yeah, I don't know how controversial it is. I'm sure in in parts of America it would still be controversial. So I know that um, this when they first brought in the law that let women single women access assisted reproductive treatment in in Australia, in Victoria anyway, that the Catholic doctrine was very much against it. Mm. So I don't know if they've changed their thinking on that. Mm. They're against a lot of things though, right? (laughs) Um, I want to tell you a little story because I didn't think about this. It it had left my memory until I um, picked up your book. Um, But I um, got married early and divorced early. And so by the time I was 30-something, I was divorced. And and pretty much like I didn't go home. I had this thing that I just don't want to go home because I felt that that was backwards. But anyway, I got found myself um, in Sydney um, and and single but I was kind of enjoying it you know like I didn't have the urge like many people the biological urge to have children I've seen it happen around me you know with ferocity with you know it's all consuming they can't stop talk about it can't stop talking about it and I just never had that like and I reckon if I did, I would have done something about it, but I didn't because I stayed single. However, this is so cute. My mum 
who was who she died last year, um, was a very, very devout Catholic. Like she went to Mass every single day. She, her sister was over, over from Lebanon and they formally asked me if they can come around for dinner. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, we need to talk to you about something. Oh, okay, all right, well, come along. And do you know they sat me down and had the conversation that if I wanted to go and get pregnant in any way I saw fit, that they would support me and help me with that child. Wow. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And, yeah, 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 two very religious women. Yeah, that's interesting because I think, there, I've encountered sort of two types of families, you know, to speak in generalities about who in terms of their reaction to their children deciding to have a kid on their own. And then there are the people who are incredibly supportive and really behind it and some of them even suggest it before the woman has thought of it. And then there are other families where it's dealt with differently. And I think my family, which I write a lot about in the book, was initially definitely not um pro my choice so that was I guess when I say controversial I am pointing at um my family's reaction to some degree and I know other women who've had that same sort of a reaction I think it just takes time for parents who have certain ideals or certain hopes for their children you know everyone wants their children to be happy to be loved and it's kind of like, to borrow a term from the queer community, it's a bit like coming out, I think, mm. to your parents in a sort of way and it takes them time to get used to the idea. It definitely took my parents' time and a friend of mine said to me, well, it's taken you forever to make the decision. Like why would they, you know, react joyously? You've got to give them the time and the space mm. to accept it. And so that really helped me. Mm. I did. Did I say that the book is a memoir, or do I just just, just jump right into it and assume that people knew the I'm book is <laughs> the book is a memoir, and it's called Inconceivable. Okay, let take me back because there was a lot of bravery. Um, I thought in that book, like lots of definitive decisions, um, and I think when you're reading a memoir, just everybody, it's your story, but our personal story, the reader's personal story is intermingled in a way. You can't help think what would I have done, you know, how brave was she or how stupid was she or, you know, what a terrible decision that was, what a great decision that was. So I want you to take me back to when you were living in New York. Take me back to a little bit of that lifestyle and then how you got to here. Talk to me about that. Sure. Well, I moved to New York when I was 26 um, with very naive and ambitious aspirations to be a playwright. And New York was the place. I love your guts. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think it's good to have a sort of delusional, naive optimism when you're you have when in your twenties, and when you're going to move to a city as challenging as New York, um, it's better to go not knowing too much about how hard it's going to be. So I ended up staying for ten years, which wasn't the plan, but. I basically built a life there and a career there and was working on shows off Broadway and doing residencies and fellowships and, you know, applying for things and writing plays. And um, I had a, I, I guess I had a career going there, but I say that with the caveat that there's so many opportunities in America and especially as an artist. And even if you've made it to a certain degree, you you still haven't made it to the very top. And I think I talk a lot about that in the book about ambition and how sort of my ambitions 
were never going to satiate me in that place. The bar kept raising higher and higher because I'd get something and I'd want something more. And New York is a place that is fueled by ambition and everyone who's there, you know, wants something and is pursuing something. And if you don't, then you're usually just sort of flotsam on the tide and, you know, maybe you're working in a restaurant and just having a good time. But I don't think people without ambition last very long in New York Mm. um, because it sort of eats you alive and it's a tough place to live. And I ended up in a long-term relationship with an American guy. We were very happy. We, as you said, lived in a lovely Brooklyn brownstone that we rented and um, we had a good life and our relationship was a happy one. But we hit an impasse when I realised that I wanted to have a baby. I was in my mid-30s and it really struck me quite suddenly, which I think happens to some women. It's yeah. phenomenal where this sort of baby fever hits you. And I envy people like you who never had that desire. I think it would be not that I regret where I am, but I just think it would be so lovely to have that lifted from you. It gives you so much more freedom in your life as a woman if you don't want a baby. Because, Ali, I mean, I never had it, but from what I've seen from my girlfriends and a lot of women around me, it's such a strong biological urge that you can't even turn it off. The kind of madness, I think. A friend of mine yeah. described it as being possessed by the devil. And, you know, there's it's a phenomenon that's been studied and... Yeah. Um, I write a little bit about that in the book as well. And it, yeah, so it really had gripped me and we started to have conversations about whether we would have kids and he wasn't ready. He was seven years my junior and he was wanting to have children but not yet and yet is a very amorphous term. What does that mean? When? Well, especially Um, when you're in your mid-30s. Exactly. And so unfortunately um, my reproductive timeline was sort of, running out and I made the very difficult decision to leave the relationship. Even though we were happy, there was nothing wrong with our relationship apart from the fact that we didn't want this huge thing. So at the same time, which, you know, is pretty fundamental. You have to kind of, I had to get out. So I moved back to Melbourne and... So you left the relationship and the city at the same time? I left the relationship and the city at the same time, yeah. I, it was... Trump had just been voted in a couple of months after we broke up. The place felt like it was permeated by sort of sadness, which was partly the breakup, partly the election. And I was ready to go. You know, I was homesick. I always knew I was going to move back to Australia and I think that contributed to all of it as well, I sort of had this sense of if I have a family, is this the place I'd want to do it? And from, like, lifting prams up subway stairs to, you know, the lack of childcare governmental support for women on maternity leave in the US, it's just a really difficult place to have a family. So I took that opportunity to sort of springboard myself, well, more like it catapulted me out of there, I think, Um So, yeah, there were two sort of big losses, but um, in a way Australia kind of provided this sort of healing space because I was back with my family. I was back in the summer. You know, I was going to the beach and swimming and it it really was what I needed after having this sort of devastating breakup and realising, oh, shit, my life is suddenly at this massive turning point and I'm single, I'm 37, I don't have a job. I've been working as an artist for 10 years, so I don't really have any savings. Um, What am I going to do with myself? And everyone said to me, don't worry, you'll meet someone. (laughs) 
which seemed to be the prevailing attitude and still is, you know, people think, don't worry, you'll meet someone, you'll meet someone. It's sort of people want to believe, and it's interesting we're doing this recording on Valentine's Day, that romance and love will always win out and that you will always find your person, which, you know, I I have conflicted feelings about. But I think, you know, we pin a lot of hope on that one love, on that one person to provide us everything. And so I spent a few years dating and this is getting but beyond your question about New York. Do you want me to No, continue? that's okay. I st- oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah don't um, stop. So I spent a few years dating. I, I dived into the hilarious hellscape of online dating and I also just dated anyone I met you know I was putting myself out there I was it was this was pre-COVID and in a way the world was different you know I was chatting to people at my yoga class and (laughs) I was really sort of um pursuing all options being set up by people that kind of thing and I met some lovely men but no one that I wanted to spend my life with and no one that I felt confident that I could have a baby with and that our relationship would remain intact. And also that just takes time. It takes time to build a relationship between two people and I didn't have time and it was putting this unnecessary pressure on this romantic pursuit. It was kind of, I was in this, yeah, I just had this sort of pressure cooker situation where it was like meet a man today, you know, get married next week, have a baby by the following week. You know, it was, it was this sort of crazy timeline. It was like, how quickly can we, you know, tick off these life markers and become bonded together and trust each other? And, you know, how soon is too soon to make all these massive life decisions? And it was. And also if you, if you didn't fall pregnant immediately, then, you know, you've only known him for six months and now you're going to do IVF together. (laughs) Exactly. Tough. There were too many wild cards and. Mm. It was a difficult decision. So I sort of simultaneously pursued a path of exploring what it would mean or what it would look like or whether it was possible to have a baby on my own using donor sperm. So I was kind of... I, I, when did that the- moment hit? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yeah. When did I start pursuing it or when did I decide? When did you decide? Well, I kind of feel like... You know, the way we write books and the way we tell stories is that things happen suddenly, you know, that we have this moment of inspiration or, you know, a bolt from the blue and we know that we have to do something and that's a good story. But I do think in life it's more incremental that we gradually make a decision. Um, it's by, inch, you know, we inch our way towards something. 
there was one moment that I do remember where I was at a party talking to a guy about my finances. He was like worked in finance or something. And whenever I tell this people story to people, they think, oh, and that was going to be the love of your life, that guy. And I was like, no, it wasn't. That was not the, you know, the outcome of the story. He was just a nice person I was having a conversation with. And he said to me, somehow we ended up talking about egg freezing and the, the conversation suddenly got very deep very quickly. And he said, well, why are you waiting? Why wait for something that you know you want now? You know, let, sorry, let me rephrase that. Why are you waiting for something that may or may not happen later when you already know what you want now? And that felt like a really revelatory moment. It kind of crystallised what everything that I'd been thinking. Mm. So I, because I'd been ping-ponging back and forth, I kept calling the fertility clinic and saying, actually, I'm going to freeze my eggs. I'm just going to freeze my eggs. And then a couple of months later, I'd call them and say, actually, I've decided I'm going to, I'm going to get some donor sperm and go down that path. And at one point, the patient liaison said to me, what are we going to do with you? You know, this sort of chiding way, like you keep changing your mind. You're so fickle. And I just felt overcome by rage because I thought, this is the biggest decision of my life. Like it's not picking a pair of shoes, you know, (laughs) this is huge. And so I really pendulumed back and forth on the idea because I wanted to believe that I would meet someone too. I wanted to believe the romantic fantasy. You know, even though I'm a feminist and I'm independent and I have progressive ideals and I don't really believe in that idea of the one, I, of course, you know, had been bred on that idea that I too would get the romantic fantasy. I too would find the person that I was supposed to be with in my life and that we would make a baby together and that everything would come good. Suddenly, you know, my mum even said to me at one point when I said I was going to wait another month before starting fertility treatment, she said, well, that gives you a month to meet your knight in shining armour. And I thought, well, (laughs) that kind of explains why I feel the way I do. There's still part of me that's been bred on this ideal, and we all have as women, Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's it's just around the corner. It's oh, it's about to appear, you know. When we least expect it, we're going to smack into that guy like in a meet cute rom com kind of way, you know. Do you know? Let me tell you this, Ali. Many years ago, I was travelling to Lebanon. Many, many years, ten, fifteen years ago, and it was such an interesting trip. And at one point, we were all held up in in I don't know somewhere Beirut maybe, and. Um, and we were, you know, at the gate and there was so many people and it was hot and, you know, I was sitting next to this guy and he said hi to me and he started chatting and then he said, I know this is really, really left field, but would you marry me? And I was like, what the? <laughs> anyway, it went on. It was such a funny story, right? Um, but when I told people, and I'm not going to bore you with the details, But the interesting thing is when I told people that story, people often said to me, well, why didn't you marry him? Oh, my God. He was a total stranger and people want to see the romance in that. This is why we love Married at First Sight and all those kinds of because we, it's, it's like sugar, you know, we keep, we keep eating it even though it's bad for us. The romantic fantasy doesn't necessarily serve us, but we are addicted to it as a culture. And we know that when we get into long-term relationships that it isn't that. Even if you love someone deeply and you have a great relationship, it's not going to be a better Look at the divorce rate. <laughs> anyway, yeah. That is, that's a brilliant story. 
Yeah, great story. All right, so getting back to you. um, Okay, so you've made the decision. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a milestone in itself, but then, you know, it's way more to come, right? Yeah, well, the you know, the actual journey to get pregnant, which is different for everyone, but a lot of the women that I know who have pursued solo motherhood have really had an epic hero's journey on the fertility quest, um, you know, failed IVF rounds, miscarriages. Um, it's And it's a lot of money and a lot of emotional work. I was very lucky in that I got pregnant first time around. Insemination. So, um, yeah, which was just random luck. It was completely random. There's about a 15% chance, my doctor told me, of that working at 39. So I felt like I was given this gift in a way. Um, Did you go for, talk to me about a sperm donor. Did you ask a friend or did you go through a bank or I'm not quite sure how that works out? I considered a lot of different options but I ended up going through the IVF clinic and using their sperm bank because there is a whole world of unregulated donor conception on the internet you know you can go on Facebook and look at the Australia backpackers sperm donation page and there are men on there who will exchange a night of accommodation and a meal for some sperm um and I realized quite quickly that this sort of unregulated world wasn't entirely safe. Um, there's a lot of risks with using an, a known, well, you know, a stranger, but who you've met on the internet um, because they're not necessarily abiding by the family limits. So every state has different family limits. In Victoria, it's 10. In New South Wales, it's five. So that sperm donor is only supposed to donate to, say, five families in Sydney. But with the internet, people can do whatever they want and they don't have to follow the rules and no one is prosecuting these people, even though we're well aware that it's happening. And so potentially your child could end up related to hundreds of siblings, which is not what you want because it's really shattering for a person's identity to, for instance, end up dating their brother or something as an adult and not knowing. And... um, so there was that, there's, you know, there's been instances of sexual assault, you know, people have been, you know, coerced into having sex with um, donors they met on the internet, that kind of stuff. It's just a very murky world. And if you go through an IVF clinic, they test the sperm, they do two counselling sessions with the guy who's donating the sperm. He's doing it for altruistic reasons. He doesn't get paid. He fills out a questionnaire. You know, you get his genetic history. He writes a letter to the child. And in Victoria, at least, which is the most progressive state um, around fertility treatment, there's a central register where you can connect with the donor and they mediate the process. So you you and the donor have counselling and um, get to sort of have this third party who connects you or connects your child and the donor if they want to do that when they're older. So it just felt like it was a much safer way to go. I know people who've you know, pursued other options by the internet or I know people who've used friends sperm. That wasn't really something that worked out for me. I thought about it initially. I thought, oh, I'll save money. I'll use a friend sperm. And then I realised if I use a friend sperm, I'm in a marriage of sorts with my friend and that's as fraught as having a baby with someone that I, you know, am dating. So I decided not to pursue that option. Mm. Tell me about the legalities of um, of knowing the sperm donor. Well, 
Whose child is it? On the birth certificate, it's my child. There's no father listed. But now the rules are that you can't be an anonymous donor in Australia. So that means what um, they're basically, just the terms just got out of my head, but identity release donors is what they're called. So there's no name on the documents. There's no date of birth. You don't get any identifying details when you purchase the sperm. But after the child is born, you can apply to find out who the donor is and or the child can find out at 18 or earlier if they want to if with the approval of a counsellor. So I have done that process where I've gone through BAFA, which is the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority, and connected with the donor and occasionally we write letters to each other through this body, um, this intermediary, and I think that's really important that those laws have changed for donor-conceived children. Um, there's a lot of tricky ethical issues around donor conception mm -hmm. and, you know, parents often have the best of intentions but um, don't uh, and doctors have the best of intentions and donors have the best of intentions but you don't know how your child is necessarily going to feel mm -hmm. and it's been, you know, studied now and found definitively that it's very important for a donor-conceived child to know from, you know, the beginning from a very early age that they're donor-conceived and to understand their family history and conception and, you know, have a sense that gives them a stronger sense of identity and belonging and means they're less conflicted about being donor-conceived. There's sort of these horrible stories of people who find out, mm. you know, by accident in their 30s and it's really shattering for their sense of self. Mm. Okay, so then you're pregnant first time around. Talk to me about that. Was it everything you wanted it to be? I think I was in shock for a while. I, I just couldn't really compute that it had worked and I eventually sort of, it eventually kind of sunk in that I'd got what I wanted, which is a very strange thing in life, you know. We all know this when you get the thing that you want. Mm. Um, and you know, as the Buddhists would say, that always comes with a whole new set of problems that <laughs> you have to negotiate. But I did definitely feel an extraordinary amount of joy and still do about having a child. And um, I think my pregnancy was slightly fraught um, because I went to New York to work on a musical. So it just sort of happened to fall in line with this production that I'd already had lined up. and. I'd been working for the show on the show for years and suddenly we got a production at Joe's Pub in New York and I thought there's no way I'm going to miss this. This is, you know, one of the pinnacles of my career. So I was sort of second trimester and in retrospect that was a pretty stressful thing to do <laughs> during pregnancy to fly halfway across the world and work on a show which, you know, theatre is a very intense medium to work in. You know, you're in the rehearsal really? studio all the time, you're doing rewrites, it's it's just it's high stakes, everything, it's the theatre, so everyone's always having a meltdown or a breakdown about something. Um, it was amazing but it was exhausting and I had planned to stay in New York for longer actually. Friends had asked me to be a celebrant at their wedding and 
I had this whole vision of myself, you know, with this like huge mound being this sort of pregnant celebrant at this gay wedding. It was going to be, you know, like I was going to be living the life. And then after the show ended, I thought there's just no way I could stay. Like I'm so physically uncomfortable and exhausted and tired. I just need to get back to Melbourne and I need to go back to work. I wasn't really earning enough money. So, uh, so that was an intense experience. And then there, not to spoiler the book too much, but there were some, there was some conflict during my pregnancy with my family, which um, everything kind of blew up, I think, all the sort of competing ideals around what I was doing suddenly came to a head, which, you know, when you're pregnant and hormonal, that's probably liable to happen. I was sort of, you know, <laughs> I was on a bit of a knife edge in terms of my emotions. So that was fraught. Um but, yeah, I mean, ultimately I had a great birth and that was a positive experience, which is not always the case for most women. Um, and I ended up with my beautiful son, who's now yeah. three. Yeah. Um, when you decided to write your story, did you think about who was going to read it? Like did you think about the family? Did you think about the donor father? Did you think about I always, I always wonder that when I'm reading memoir, yeah. Talk to me Cheryl, about that. I thought about it all the time. I was basically in a state of terror for two years, thinking, yeah. what am I doing? I shouldn't be, like, I can't write about this. I'm going to destroy relationships. You know, I wrote, it's a, it's a memoir about becoming a mother, but it's also a memoir about my relationship with my mother. And because, but to become a mother, you have to grapple with your own relationship with your mother. I mean, I think every woman grapples with their relationship with their mother throughout their lifetime, don't they? Mm, they do. And, so I think in that way, whilst this is a memoir for people who might be considering having a baby on their own, I think it's also a memoir for people who have mothers, which is a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so it's everyone. I, yeah, I really grappled with that and I grappled with how much I should reveal about my personal life, my sex life. Um, my mum actually said to me recently, so she's read the book now. My whole family's read it and given their approval, thank God. Um, but that was a very tense waiting period where they were reading it. And she said, she jokingly said, I've been telling people not to read it. And I said, what, what, why are you doing an anti-marketing campaign on the book? <laughs> and she said, oh, you know, I know they will read it when I tell them not to read it. And I said, is there something you're worried about? Is there something that... I should change in the book because sometimes people are hung up on one, one sentence. You know, I've shown it to various family members and my sister-in-law wanted me to change one line of dialogue, you know, and I happily changed it because I could see why she was, you know, concerned about it. Mm. So sometimes, you know, people are very caught up on one detail and so I said, look, if there's something in there that you're uncomfortable with, something about you, something about your own mother because I mentioned my grandmother in it, just, you know, let's talk about it. And she said, no, 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 it's nothing about me. It's just all the drugs and sex. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually about me. So she was talking about my relationships. And, you know, I don't think there's a huge amount of drug use in the book, but there's a few instances and there's a few sex scenes. And um, I just laughed and said, well, that's fine. As long as it's about me, you know, I can kind of cop that. Of course, you know, that's also terrifying being exposed in that way, but it's less terrifying somehow than upsetting your parents. 
Mm. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about me. Probably need some more therapy. Well, I think um, it's it's really just such a, a beautiful read and an interesting read, um, and you're a lovely writer as well, but I guess it's because you've got a writing background. We're out of time. Alexandra, the book is called Inconceivable. Um, it's a memoir. Go read it. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.